This episode of Long Reads is brought to you in association with Pluto Press. Pluto have developed a new list of audiobooks for some of their most popular titles, which are now available to buy directly from the publisher. They include titles like Amelia Horgan's highly praised book, Lost in Work. If you buy at least one audiobook from plutobooks.com before the end of December, you'll be entered for a draw to win one of three sets of the entire list. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The World Cup begins this week in Qatar. The biggest sporting event on the planet is taking place this year under a hail of controversy. The process that awarded Qatar its role as host prompted allegations of corruption. There has also been a barrage of media reporting about the atrocious working conditions on stadium construction sites. The following report comes from DW News. To this day, Jamal Moula and his family don't know why Sujan suddenly died two years ago. One thing's beyond doubt. His wasn't an isolated case. Thousands of mostly young men have left for Qatar and not returned alive. How did he die? We were told his teeth suddenly started hurting and that he later died in hospital of a heart attack. On Sujan's death certificate, it says, acute heart failure due to natural causes, wording commonly used to cover up other potential causes of migrant workers' deaths, such as total exhaustion or heat stroke, says Amnesty International. Officially, during the hottest summer months, no one is allowed to work outside in the middle of the day. But where there's no plaintiff, there's no judge. The violations are possible because most migrants find themselves at the mercy of their employers, owing to a perfidious sponsorship system known as Kafala, and this is how it works. To be allowed to enter Qatar, foreign workers need a local sponsor. Usually that's the employer. As a sponsor, the employer determines the right of every migrant to live and work in the country. Often, employers even confiscate their workers' passports. If a worker wants to change his job or leave the country, he needs his sponsor's permission to do that. If my brother was still alive, we'd watch the World Cup together on TV. We'd cheer the matches together. But now I'm calling on the government in Qatar to pay foreign workers what they're entitled to and help those families who've lost a loved one in Qatar so that they can carry on living. This year's tournament seems like a good opportunity to look at the economic and political structures underpinning the world's most popular sport. Our guest today is Jonathan Wilson. He's a football columnist for The Observer and the author of several books including studies of football in Eastern Europe and Argentina, as well as the recent dual biography of Jack and Bobby Charlton. What do we know today about the circumstances in which Qatar won the right to host the World Cup? And how does it relate to the wider FIFA corruption scandal? <laughs> OK, I mean, that's a, that is a, a massive question. So what, what we know is that of the 22 members of the Executive Committee of FIFA who made the decision, 16 have either been convicted of corruption offences or have been credibly accused of corruption. So I don't think there's any direct evidence against Qatar or indeed Russia, uh, the two decisions being made at the same time. But certainly the body making that decision has been proved to be pretty flawed. There were all the arrests in Zurich in 2015 when the FBI got involved. And this is one of the problems with, with footballing corruption, that because it goes cross-border, it's very, very hard for anybody to have the, the authority to to actually take proper action. Foolishly, it appears that some of the... I mean, I think the thing they actually got them on was fraud over some TV deals in South America. But so, some of the interactions that were questionable were were performed in dollars, and that, that gives the, the US authorities the, the, the right to, to intervene. So the FBI really is the only body that can get involved. It may then not be consistent that the US is, is hosting the next World Cup in conjunction with, with Mexico and Canada. So that led to the downfall of Sepp Blatter. I personally don't find Sepp Blatter as objectionable as a lot of people do. I think it's very easy to think that FIFA's corruption was embodied in him. I think it's important to stress he's never been convicted of uh, any corruption. I think he absolutely paid himself an enormous salary and, and uh, very, very generous expenses. He was uh, instrumental in, 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 in the 70s in... 
helping Joe Havilland topple Sadney Rouse in, in the presidential elections in 1974, which is what led to FIFA's modern age of corporatism and, and um, the corruption that, that's gone alongside that. I think it's probably fair to say that, that at some level he had the best of football at heart. I think he, he, he genuinely was an evangelist for football. He, I think he genuinely believed that, that he or, or, or FIFA had the chance of winning a Nobel Peace Prize for, for taking the, the World Cup to South Africa. And uh, yeah, he, he wanted to take it to South Africa in 2006. And there was some very, very dodgy stuff that went on that it ended up going to Germany with the, uh, Charles Dempsey, who was a 70-odd-year-old New Zealand delegate who would have voted for South Africa, uh, disappeared the night before the vote and went back to New Zealand. Still, yeah, he's, well, he's dead now. And it was never explained why he did that, but it would have been 12-12 a vote and Blatter would have had the casting vote and would have voted for South Africa. It would have been 12-11 to Germany and that's never really been properly investigated. He did take it to South Africa in 2010, which I don't think was a great World Cup, but I think the idea behind it was was very laudable. And I think to an extent what Blatter was was a realist that when you have these enormous global corporations that essentially exist beyond the reach of any any one authority, a certain amount of corruption is inevitable. And what Blatter did was to sort of keep an eye on that. And when it was politically useful for him to expose it, as in the case of Mohammed bin Hammam, who uh, was a Qatari uh, who, who stood against him in the presidential election and he, he showed that bin Hammam had had made payments to the Caribbean Football Union, uh, he could take out opponents. So he not only didn't crack down on corruption, but he he sort of used it to his own ends. Whether that makes him himself corrupt, I think is a slightly slightly different issue. But he was toppled in the wake of the Zurich arrest in 2015. Um, you then had the very, very strange campaign against Michel Platini, who I think was his... Yeah, he, Platini was the obvious person to follow Blatter. Platini was involved in the guitar business in a pretty direct way that he was the president of the UEFA at the time. It looked very much as though he would vote for the US and take the two other UEFA votes for the US for, for 2022. And then nine days before the vote, he went to a meeting at the Lycée Palace with the then French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, and the current Emir of Qatar. He was the son of the Emir then. And mysteriously after that, that, that meeting, he he and the two other UEFA delegates switched their votes to Qatar, and there was then a, a big order placed by the Qatari government for French fighter jets. So make of that what you will. I sorry. So what I was then saying was, Platini was the sort of the present elect, if you like. There was then an allegation made against him that he'd taken two million two million dollar or two million Swiss franc uh, payment from Sepp Blatter that was illegal. The evidence, I think, was always pretty flimsy. Both of them were exonerated earlier this year, but that was enough to to end Platini's football political career. And he was replaced by Gianni Infantino, who is now the president of FIFA, who has shut down various ethics commissions, who seems quite happy bantering on the world stage, Vladimir Putin with Mohammed bin Salman. And he, he lives in Qatar now, which I think is also an interesting development. Sepp Blatter left behind a curious legacy in the shape of a film called United Passions. Starring Gerard Depardieu, Sam Neill and Tim Roth, the movie tells the story of FIFA from its early years to the present day. Blatter funded the movie directly and appears to have supervised the final cut. He originally wanted to call this study of high-level sporting administration Men of Legend. When it appeared in 2015, just as the FIFA corruption scandal was breaking out, Critics hailed United Passions as one of the worst films ever made. It may contain the largest number of upper-class English villains to have appeared in any big-budget film since Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Our association has just celebrated its 40th anniversary. Your so-called federation doesn't even exist yet. So, why not come back in 40 years' time when you've got things up and running and we'll discuss it then? Monsieur... In the following scene, FIFA's Brazilian president, João Havelanga, gives his English predecessor a lecture on the rising tide of the global south. I took the rest of the world seriously. I travelled to over 100 countries. And now some of these nations, they show their, they show their gratitude. Mm, the Africans. Amongst others. Those people will never understand the subtleties of football. My only consolation is knowing that your African friends will betray you in the end. Just as they betrayed me. 
By granting them power, Avalanche, you've opened Pandora's box. Ross. The future of our sport lies in Africa and in Asia and America. And if you cannot see that, I cannot help you. The second half of the movie is dominated by Tim Roth's performance as Sepp Blatter. The script presents Blatter as the hammer of corruption in sporting circles. The next tournaments will take place in both South Korea and in Japan, far from Europe. Some of you may feel that this is a good opportunity to close lucrative deals with certain lobbies. Think again. The sport is spotless. There is simply a lot more money involved in ours, which is why from now on we will be exemplary in all respects. The slightest breach of ethics will be severely punished. (laughs) Is that a threat, Mr. President? I'm not accusing anyone. Veiled accusations. A new protocol. Our federation has almost 200 members. Is there anyone in this room naive enough to believe that all 200 are honest? I believe we are 200 gentlemen and should be treated as such. Well, then conduct yourself as an honest gentleman and you will be. There are always a few rotten apples. I object, Mr. President. Noted, sir. President Havelange would have never dared to treat us with such utter contempt. Well, maybe he should have. President Havelange is no longer president. I am. There's one scene where Blatter meets a journalist investigating FIFA corruption that hints at a more complicated picture. I'm not responsible for what might have happened prior to my presidency, which you choose to call embezzlement. You're the Secretary General, for God's sakes. Either you knew, which makes you just as guilty, or you didn't, which makes you a bloody fool. All right, all right. In every association, there are honest people and there are traitors, and there are those who could go either way. Everything I've done up until this point has been for the good of football, for the good of the family, a family which I'll protect at all costs. Even those members are purported liars, thieves. Purported. (laughs) You'll find out soon enough. You said this was to be a, a friendly meeting, off the record. It is. FIFA is a sensitive subject, Mr. Wilcox. Your role is to question it. Mine is to protect it. You're the journalist. I'm the president. You've got to ask yourself one thing. Are the people I'm protecting worthy? Sepp Blatter was reported to have been very touched and satisfied with the final version of the movie. Having cost about $30 million to make... United Passions took just over $900 on its opening weekend and became the lowest-grossing film in US box office history. This summer, English clubs spent well over €2 billion on transfer fees, which was more than the next four European leagues put together. Do you think that the architects of the Premier League in the early 1990s had any idea that it would prove to be so successful in global commercial terms? I'm sure they hoped it would be. I think really it was it was part of a more general movement. It was also quite a defensive move. So that, that general movement, you had Silvio Berlusconi bought AC Milan in 84-ish, basically rescued them from, from probable bankruptcy. And he that, that then gained him popularity and helped launch his political career. But in which year would it have been? Uh, would have been 87-8. Napoli, the Italian champions, played Real Madrid in the first round of the European Cup, which in those days was a straight knockout competition. And Berlusconi sort of said, well, this is crazy. You've got two of the biggest markets, Italy and Spain, playing against each other. And whoever loses is out. And you've lost that TV market. You've lost all that revenue. This is a crazy way to organize this competition. And so he was, you know, Berlusconi looking, obviously, with his AC Milan hat on, that he didn't want his AC Milan team to win the win Serie A, to win the Italian League, to get into the European Cup and find themselves playing against the Spanish champions or the German champions in the first round. So he he was very much the, the, the leader of a move to what became the Champions League, the first season, which was 92-3, which also the first season of the, of the Premier League. In the early 1990s, the broadcaster Channel 4 began showing matches from Italy's Serie A, which was unquestionably the strongest league in the world. 
The live matches from Rome, Florence or Naples seem like an alien spacecraft landing on the muddy pitch of English football. Three decades later, the idea of watching football matches from another country has become entirely routine. But the Premier League has overtaken Serie A as the home of the world's richest clubs. So there was this this realisation I think, in the late 80s, generally across Europe, that the commercial potential of football wasn't being as exploited as it could be. And that maybe sort of sporting considerations, for, for want of a better term, were, were outweighing economic considerations. But I think in the specific case of England, you'd had the Heysel ban, uh, which was imposed in 1985 after the death of 39 Juventus fans at Heysel in, in, in Brussels at the European Cup final when, when Juventus beat Liverpool. Uh, that, so English clubs were banned for five years. And so they lost a lot of revenue and a lot, a lot of exposure as a result. And so trying to gain more revenue from domestic TV rights or, or for the domestic games was a, I think it was a way less of world domination and a sort of staving off financial crisis for them. But then as as they, they marketed it brilliantly, you know, the, the, the way the Premier League was run, whatever you think of the founding principles, the Premier League has run itself better than any other league in the world. And the result is, 30 years on, that it is absolutely dominant financially. Before the launch of the Premier League, there were several films made about English football hooligans. The pick of the bunch was Alan Clark's The Firm. It featured Gary Oldman as a South London casual who wants to establish national unity between rival hooligans so they can fight Johnny Foreigner. Now, are you going to tell us about this mega plan of yours or what? It's simple, Obo. Even you and Snow White might get the drift. If we don't stick together, they're going to trample all over us. Told you, he's running scared. Oh, am I wasting my time here or what? Look, I'm recruiting for a national firm. Do you want in or what? Oh, don't tell me. You want to be top girl. There you are, Obo. I told you it was simple enough for you to grasp. Who's a clever little girl then? You make me sick, you cockneys. <laughs> always think you've got the right to run things. We how important was the purchase of Chelsea by Roman Abramovich in shaping the economic development of English football? I think it was hugely important because previously you'd always had to do well on the pitch to generate money. And obviously when you generate money, you can buy better players and, and employ better managers and you're then more likely to be successful, which will generate more revenue. And, and you know, even when the league was founded back in 1888, it was a recognition that this was the case. And so to prevent certain clubs sort of creating this sort of wealth spiral and to prevent the big clubs just, just dominating, various measures were put in place. There was a, a general levy of, of 4% of income was, was divided among all, well, what became 92 league clubs, 12 league clubs in, in 1888. Although actually, that probably wasn't brought into the First World War. So maybe we're talking post-First World War. For 25% of gate receipts were shared with the away club. So... Although if you had a big stadium, you had an advantage, it wasn't that much of an advantage. And it's only really when the TV rights revolution began that you start to get these self-perpetuating elites. Uh, I mean, the term super club, which we, you know, we sort of hear bandied about pretty, pretty freely now, that first appears at the early 70s. And I think that's a recognition that the marketplace has changed with the coming of Match of the Day in 1964, that this sort of television taking football so you can be a Manchester United fan and don't have to live anywhere near Old Trafford to watch them play. You can watch them on TV on a Saturday night. That that has changed parameters. 981, they get rid of the the um, the, the protocol by which you had to give a, a percentage of, of uh, gate receipts to, to the away club. And that, that, again, sort of allows the big clubs to become bigger. That is magnified after the coming of the Premier League. The following clip comes from a BBC documentary called The Men Who Changed Football. It profiled some of the English football chairmen who spearheaded the game's commercial revolution. David Dean had made his money as a fruit and sugar trader. He was an Arsenal fan. An investment of £300,000 brought him a substantial stake in the club. At a time when many clubs were facing bankruptcy, it seemed a ridiculously huge sum. Arsenal's chairman thought Dean was crazy. It's dead money, the chairman said. I was invited to join the board. I became vice chairman in October of, of 83. And uh, I still had uh, my own business at the time. And I decided that I felt that football was really a sleeping giant and had a long way to go. 
particularly after spending time in the States and how the Americans operated their, their sport, particularly American football and baseball and basketball. I felt we were light years behind and we had so much more to give as an attraction. Irving Scholar was the chairman of Tottenham, another club from North London. I was fed up with watching uh, kids walking up and down the high street wearing uh, American football uh, T-shirts, baseball stuff. Why weren't they wearing their uh, uh, own football teams stuff? Scholar recruited Edward Friedman, a local retailer, to help him with his project. Friedman spotted that the Tottenham name could be exploited as a brand and used to sell a whole range of different merchandise to the customers. We tried to give them quality and we tried to give them design, bearing in mind the whole Tottenham ideas and philosophy. I mean, the Tottenham supporters, the majority of the supporters were quite reasonably well off and they were prepared to spend the money. They weren't going to argue if they could buy the right product. Spurs' fashionable clothing and new shopping opportunities were the very beginning of the merchandising revolution that's taken place in football. At the start of the 1980s, commercial activities represented just a tiny fraction of a top division club's income. Today, this has risen to almost 40%. Dean and Scholar were two of the key figures pushing for the launch of the Premier League and the sale of television rights to Rupert Murdoch. Within a few years, it was virtually impossible to avoid being exposed to football coverage in the British media. This comedy sketch by David Mitchell of Peep Show fame was only a slight exaggeration of the real thing. Tomorrow night on Sky Sports 4, it's the clash of the South Coast as the irresistible force of Portsmouth meet the immovable object of Southampton in a clash that's going to go down in history as one of the many football matches that are happening this weekend. Meanwhile, there are old scores to be settled at the Dell. Scores like 1-0 and 2-all that have happened in previous years. Who will win this time between Sunderland and Blackburn? Then on Sunday, live, the battle for the Northwest at Shrewsbury meet Macclesfield in a match already being described as on this Sunday. Coming up midweek, the Giants of Charlton play host to the Titans of Ipswich, making them both seem normal-sized. Tottenham play Bolton for the second time this season to see who will win that. Also, Manchester United return to Aston Villa for a game of football to determine the victors, for this year at least, and indeed at most. Looking ahead to March, every football team will be playing football several times and in various combinations. If you can catch all of that football here, where we'll be showing all the football all the time. Catch all of the constantly happening football here. It's all here and it's all football always. It's impossible to keep track of all the football, but your best chance is here. Thousands and thousands of hours of football, each more climactic than the last. But even that first 10 years of the Premier League, you have to actually win games to, to make money. And then Abramovich comes in and suddenly wealth is not contingent on performance on the pitch. It decouples success on the pitch from wealth. You can have money just because you've got a mega rich owner. Now, of course, this happened at times in the past. You had a local businessman. So you'd have uh, Jack Walker at Blackburn, for instance, would come in, spent a load of money, Blackburn win the league. But they they weren't the sums that Abramovich was putting in. In Abramovich's first season, the first summer, Chelsea spent more than the next nine clubs, I think, in the Premier League put together. So it was an enormous investment and not far off the second summer. So suddenly there was this huge external agent investing the sort of sums we'd never seen before. And I think at the time, um, and I, I just started out as a journalist then, and I think we were pretty naive about that. We just sort of thought, oh, it's an amazing amount of money. And I was sort of, this is all very exciting. All these players are arriving. And it, alongside that, there's this slight distaste of just how moral is this, that, that a very rich man can come along and, and break up the structures. And I don't think we really had any notion of what we'd now call sports washing, of the reasons why Abramovich might be investing. And I think it was really only sort of eight, ten years later we really began to interrogate that of what, why is he doing this? We sort of had bought the line that he, you know, he'd, he'd watched the Manchester United beat Real Madrid four three, and it sort of thought, oh yes, I, I love this game. I must must buy a slice of it for myself. 
and I, th- I think if we if it was interrogated, the, the sense was he was protecting his own position against Putin by making himself a figure who was well known in the West. And and perhaps there was an element of that because he subsequently took Israeli and Portuguese citizenship, which you could argue has given him certain escape routes. The idea that this was sort of part of the tentacles of Russian money unveiling itself into Western European society, I think hadn't really occurred to anybody. But in terms of the impact on football, I think the very obvious direct comparison is to Arsenal, who at around this time began the process of trying to move away from Highbury, their their traditional home, which was pretty small, capacity just over 30,000, very limited corporate facilities. And they realised that to to try and challenge Manchester United, who Old Trafford, which at the time was state-of-the-art, 70-odd thousand capacity, amazing commercial possibilities around it and and, and corporate hospitality and everything, that Arsenal needed their equivalent of Old Trafford. And they they began the process of moving to, to what's now the Emirates. Their problem was that came at enormous cost. The interest repayments on the loan impacted their their ability to pay transfer fees and pay wages for a long time, even after they moved into the stadium. And by the time the stadium was built, the need to generate your own revenue was already old hat, that revenue had to come from a a sugar daddy from abroad. Uh, So Bramwich begins that process of decoupling wealth in football from performance on the pitch or the ability to, to drag fans through the gate. The Abramovich era at Chelsea came to a sudden end after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as NBC reported. Perhaps the world's most famous Russian oligarch, Roman Abramovich, has just been sanctioned by the British government, and it may throw a wrench in his plans to sell the soccer team Chelsea Football Club. The billionaire bought the team back in 2003 in a $184 million deal and fueled the club financially to trophy after trophy, making it one of the world's most dominant soccer teams. But under mounting political pressure amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine... Surely Mr Abramovich should no longer be able to own a football club in this country. Before the British government froze his assets, Abramovich released a statement where he announced plans to sell his soccer team and promised that the proceeds of that sale would go toward a foundation to help victims of the war in Ukraine. But with his British assets now frozen, including the world-famous Chelsea Football Club and his multi-million dollar London home, his net worth is expected to take a tumble. The UEFA Champions League has clearly widened the gulf between big clubs and small clubs and between big leagues and small leagues across the whole of Europe. Was that always the intention behind it or is it a case of unintended and unforeseen consequences? I think it's very difficult to say. I mean, I think clearly the the fundamental urge was greed. The big clubs saying we have to make more and perhaps a, an unwillingness or an inability to recognise but actually, this this the way that European football is, it is this enormous ecosystem. And once you start damaging parts of it, that has ramifications elsewhere. So I, 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 the thing is, it is totally foreseeable, but I don't think they did foresee it, if that makes sense. And I, I think we, the football media, we, the football public, and, and some did, to be fair. I mean, you, you look at, particularly with, with, the, with the Premier League, there's a lot of opposition to it in the early days. People pointing out the, you know, this, this process of enriching the rich at the expense of the poor was inevitable. Uh, but probably that was never fully communicated to fans and you didn't get the sort of backlash against it that you had, for instance, against the Super League last year. So I, I think it was inevit- an, an inevitable consequence. And, and it, it's very, very difficult once once that's begun to happen. It's very, very difficult to, to put right because uh, there's been various tweaks to the structure to try and encourage clubs from outside the, the big five leagues, although France's place in the big five leagues, I think is is slightly skewed. It's essentially, it's PSG. It's not really any of the other clubs. And I think actually, even in terms of the UEFA coefficient, Portugal have now superseded France, although none of the Portuguese clubs have a stature of, of PSG. But the problem is, I mean, for instance, you had uh, Apoel from, from Cyprus got to the quarterfinal of the Champions League, I don't know, about a decade ago. And you saw the part, you think, oh, it's great. It's this underdog story and, and there's a Cypriot club in the quarterfinal. But the problem is the money they get from that then absolutely destroys the Cypriot League because Apoel, suddenly their budget is 10, 20, 30 times that of their nearest competitor. And, and so the Champions League is not just problematic in that the richest clubs in the Champions League are much stronger than the, the poorer clubs in the Champions League, but that the poorer clubs in the Champions League are then much richer than their rivals uh, domestically 
which then skews you know, th- those competitions and means that those clubs carry on qualifying for Champions League and carry on getting that increased money. So how you put that right without wholesale redistribution, which clearly none of them will ever agree to, I don't really know. This year's Champions League final proved to be one of the most controversial episodes in the history of the competition. The match was delayed because of dangerous overcrowding on the way into the stadium. The following report on the events in Paris comes from the BBC. This nine-year-old was caught by the effects of tear gas. Liverpool fans say it was indiscriminate and heavy-handed policing after officers failed to manage the crowd and get everyone to their seats in time for kick-off. It was an experience which meant many went home to Merseyside in shock as well as disappointment. Big queue, have kids getting close together and stuff. It was, it was disgusting, really. A young lad who I know who's, who's 12, his dad's uh, posted a message, they were gassed. He's 12. A few old people were getting tear gassed, we got tear gassed, there was a few kids panicking. We got into the stadium, me and my daughter, but it was quite intimidating, but... Other people we knew didn't get in who had tickets to get in. We got there about two and a half hours before kick-off and then going into one gate, they tried, or a thousand of us trying to go through one gate that only had one turnstile open, so it's just, just mayhem. They were squashed up against the fences they all they down the side. People were crying. People were crying. Kids. There was children on parents' shoulders. We were in tears. It's just what we witnessed. It was just horrific. Both UEFA and the French government claim that Liverpool fans were to blame for the problem. A French parliamentary inquiry has since confirmed that claim was a lie. It held the authorities responsible for what could have been a major loss of life. For many Liverpool fans, the attempted cover-up brought back memories of the Hillsborough disaster in 1989. soccer fans were crushed to death at the Liverpool-Nottingham Forest semi-final held at Hillsborough in Sheffield. They'd been let in by police hoping to ease congestion outside the ground. No crowd trouble had taken place. As The Guardian reporter David Conn explains... A report published in 2012 exposed a conspiracy by the police to blame the victims of their own criminal negligence. As uh, David Cameron has just spoken and the message that we've had in terms of the summary of the report is remarkably clear that it is, it is that day of complete vindication for the families that have fought for 23 years to, as they see it, establish the full truth of what happened at Hillsborough and afterwards and as they sadly see it and as David Cameron supported in his speech, they felt the need to defend their own children and relatives who died in the disaster because of a campaign of denigration that went on, that the disaster was caused by drunk Liverpool supporters or supporters without tickets or supporters misbehaving. That has been comprehensively debunked in this uh, inquiry which has reviewed every statement, uh, every public document held by all the agencies responsible and its findings are absolutely devastating uh, in the sense that the South Yorkshire Police, as was found in the Taylor report only four months after the disaster, uh, were culpable for mismanaging the crowd uh, in a dreadful way on the day and yet instead of accepting that culpability they instituted a campaign which we're seeing for the first time in, in great detail how orchestrated it was, how organised it was, to blame the supporters for causing the disaster, to, to put out stories of drunkenness and ticketlessness, including to the media, and that that campaign was endorsed and encouraged personally by the Chief Constable, Peter Wright. What impacts have the financial fair play rules devised by UEFA had in terms of levelling the playing field? I mean, the truth is almost nil. I think I think actually weirdly the impact they had um, so they came in in 2011 and it was just as as Russian oligarchs were beginning to to invest in Russian clubs. So you had Yevgeny Gina at um, uh, CSKA Moscow. You had Suleiman Karimov who invested in in Anji in Makashkala, which was you know the most bizarre of all these stories. That essentially a seemingly a Russian government idea that you went to Makashkala, one of one of these disputed regions, and you gave them a top-level European club and that would sort of calm the waters. And so, yeah, they, they invested an enormous amount of money. They brought in Hussidink as coach. Uh, they brought in Roberto Carlos. They brought in Samuel Eto. They brought in um, Christopher Samba. And then Karimov, whose fortune came from Potash, 
I have to say that this is slightly beyond my realms of knowledge, but or realms of expertise. But I, I think the potash price was controlled by cartel. I think his company was called Alkali, tried to break away from the cartel, and that caused the price of potash to crash. And he then had to sell off all his assets, assets including Angie. But I, I think you see the investment in Russian football, domestic football, slows dramatically after financial fair play regulations. That that those that first wave really took them seriously. Uh, Russian football was then you know, absolutely destroyed by the sanctions imposed after the invasion of Crimea in, in 2014. And Yevgeny Gina particularly had a lot of assets in, in Ukraine, which he was no longer able to access. And so the, the investment in the CSK declined. But in terms of checking what Manchester City have done, what PSG have done, it's had almost no impact. Because what's happened is every now and again, somebody raises a quibble, and there'll be an investigation and the investigation will drag on and drag on and drag on. And the truth is UEFA does not have the financial clout to legally challenge a state-run club. So a state-run club can just afford lawyers to keep dragging the thing out until it goes beyond statute of limitations, which is how uh, Manchester City, having been banned from the Champions League, eventually got off on appeal that it was not that they hadn't committed an offence, but the offence was too long ago to, for them to be punished for it. Yeah, uh, City, there's been an investigation now that's been going on for four years from the Premier League into, I think it's into payments made in 2014. And four years after the investigation began, there's no sign of it ever coming to a close. So even if some punishment is imposed, it's going to be you know a decade after the offence, if it was indeed an offence, which we don't know. So in reality, Financial fair plays had had almost no impact. And the other thing we found is that um, state-run clubs have a lot of state-run entities who can give very lucrative sponsorship deals to those clubs. Uh, and who's to say what a fair market price is? It's, it's almost impossible to regulate that. In 2021, some of Europe's biggest clubs floated the idea of a breakaway Super League. Football fans protested against the abortive scheme, especially in England. This Sky News report looked at the demands being made by fans of Manchester United. The Glazer family, which owns United, rarely communicates with fans. But after apologising this week, it promised to rebuild trust. That was the first time that Joel Glazer has communicated with United fans for 16 years. 16 years of nothing. They haven't been to a game since April 2019. They don't care. Empty words. He said we need to rebuild trust. There was no trust to begin with. Trust is not enough. I understand it's more, there needs to be systemic changes to the way that clubs are earned across the whole country. Because it's not just Man United, it's not just the Glazers. I've been following United since 1956, so you can guess my age. And it's about time that somebody spoke up about the parasites in this club. United would have become one of 12 permanent members of the ill-fated European Super League, a breakaway competition from UEFA's Champions League. And Joel Glazer, who is the club's co-chairman, was set to become the new league's vice-chair. The fans here want a 50-plus-1 ownership structure, which would give them control of the club through a voting majority. Commercial investors would still be able to make suggestions, but they'd need the fans' backing to get things done. Would you say the formation of a European Super League is inevitable in the long run, despite the setback to that project last year? And if it is, will we even notice the difference by the time that it happens? I'm, I'm loath to say it's inevitable, but it, it feels like the direction of travel. I think the Premier League is is fine. You know, the Premier League, even though City uh, you know, won four of the last five and, and uh, you're a second at the moment, even though they're clearly dominant, it's not like Germany where Biden have won 10 in a row or Italy where Juve won was it nine in a row, then they haven't won the last two or France where PSG have won, again, I think is it nine of the last 11? Spain where it's a very obvious duopoly between Real Madrid and Barcelona. And if both of them have terrible seasons, Atletico can just, just pinch it, but nobody else can. It's those three and really it's two and they both have to mess up for the third one to have a, have a chance. And I think those, those are leading countries they're, they're very worried by that. They realise that it's it's not a good product if the same team wins all the time. And they've got themselves trapped in this financial system where the team is successful, makes more money, so it can buy the best players, it's more successful. And how do you get out of that without breaking the structures completely? I think the pandemic has accelerated that process, that the Premier League 
because it's wealthier, because it, it's got bigger TV broadcast deals, was able to ride out the pandemic a bit better than than other countries. Uh, I mean, you look at even this summer in, in La Liga, Barcelona, I think their net spend was something like 150 million euros. I think the next highest was something like 12 million euros because the pandemic has, has hammered revenues so much. And, and Barcelona, to, to afford that 150 million euros, have had to sell off a quarter of TV rights for the next 25 years and yeah, various other bits of the family silver. So I think there's a, a lot of economic pressure on the rest of Europe. And I think they look at the Premier League and think, right, we need a way to to, to combat that. And the Super League would would seem an obvious obvious way of doing it. How you actually achieve that, I don't know, because PSG were pretty against the Super League, I think because their owners are smart enough to recognise fans don't like the idea of a closed league. Uh, they, you know, they they like the idea that the Champions League is somehow still a meritocracy and that you know a team can fall and a team can rise. However difficult that is, it is still at least theoretically possible, which in a closed league it, it wouldn't be. You'd have these sort of quasi-franchises. German fan culture is such that they'd be very opposed to it. Uh, there's absolutely no reason for the English clubs to get involved. And, and I honestly find it mystifying that so many, so many of them did before. I think it's not... It's not insignificant how many of those who went along with it have American owners who maybe sort of saw the possibility of an American style system, you know, a quasi franchise system to lock in the revenues. Yeah, the Premier League has such an advantage at the moment that I'm not really sure why they would give that up. There's practical issues against it for all the arguments in terms of the big clubs for it. But I think the thing that's absolutely key is uh, an ongoing case of that the three Super League clubs who are still invested in the project, which is Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Juventus that they brought against UEFA, accusing them of holding a monopoly position. Now, whether they do or not, I, I, I don't know. That's to be decided by the European courts. But if the European courts decide that UEFA is not allowed to hold that monopoly position, then suddenly there's nothing stopping them setting up a Super League. FIFA, I guess, could stop them, but it might be the kind of thing FIFA thinks, well, you know, what? we'll back that and we can have a nice slice of the juicy club revenues at the minute we shut out from and we get to uh, stab our old rivals UEFA in the back. And I think then there's a very real risk of football splintering in the way that, you know, in golf now you have the live tour or the way that boxing you have the you know, various different belts uh, for the for the world world titles. And if you if, if it splinters, then I, I think football's in a, in a whole new world and, and it, it could be in a big mess. Because if, if you say I had Manchester United belong to one franchise and Real Madrid belong to another and they couldn't play each other, I think that suddenly is a far, far less attractive product. Silvio Berlusconi's success in Italian politics established a template for the likes of Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. Berlusconi used his previous role as the chairman of AC Milan to launch his political career in the early 90s. He even named his party Forza Italia, after the slogan used by Italian football fans. The following clip comes from a documentary about AC Milan in the years leading up to Berlusconi's great adventure. In the 1960s, Milan won the European Cup twice, but the next two decades brought little to cheer for fans of the Rossoneri. Everything changed in 1986 when the media tycoon and future politician Silvio Berlusconi became president of a club that just four years previously were in the second division and had earlier been found guilty of match-fixing. In 1987, Berlusconi appointed Arrigo Sacchi as manager, a decision that surprised many. Berlusconi made a real Italian story come true. He'd given a Ferrari to a complete stranger. Sacchi's Serie B team, Parma, had eliminated Milan from the Coppa Italia the previous year. They asked me, how can you coach winners if you've never won anything yourself? And I said, I never knew you had to be a horse to be able to train one. By 1989, Berlusconi's Milan had reached the European Cup final. They faced Stoia Bucharest of Romania, where the communist system would disintegrate a few months later. From the first minute, we dominated the game. We played a very good game, all of us. After 18 minutes, Milan took the lead their domination deserved through Rude Hullet. That was the perfect match. If you watch Milan against Stauer on TV today and you're with a coach, 
who wants to play a 4-4-2 formation with his team. That game is the perfect example. Nine minutes later, Marco van Basten added a second. Every uh, player who performed with the team uh, reached a very, very high level. And uh, not only individually, but as a team. Rud Hullet made it 3-0, but Saki was not satisfied. I told them at 3-0, let's go for more. Two minutes after half-time, Milan did just that. Marco van Basten scored his second of the game. It was such an unbelievable result for us. In fact, we took our foot off the accelerator at 4-0. At last, Milan were once again champions of Europe. Five years after this great triumph, Milan defeated Barcelona by the same four-goal margin to win the European Cup once again. The previous week, Berlusconi had taken office for the first time as Italy's Prime Minister. One by Desai, and Desai is still going for Milan. 4-0 now to the Rossoneri. And surely they have wrapped this up. Mauro Tassotti, the captain for the day, lifts the trophy. The Rossoneri are European champions once again. You mentioned earlier the role of Silvio Berlusconi, who famously launched his entire political career on the back of his position as chairman of AC Milan. Today's generation of club owners don't seem to be very interested in national political interventions in the way that someone like Berlusconi was. Is that a fair generalisation? And if so, why do you think that is? I think in Europe it probably is true. I mean, you've obviously got the the case of Monsieur Macri in, in Argentina, who who was president of Boca and, and, and that, you know, much the same way as Berlusconi, gained him the popularity and the popular appeal and the recognition to become president of, of his country. But in Europe, I, I think it's just that those leading clubs, they're too big now. You know, uh, uh, an aspiring political candidate couldn't afford them. To be able to afford them, you either, either have to be the sovereign wealth fund of a, of a state or you have to be an American hedge fund. I mean, they're, they're essentially the two groups of people who are buying clubs at the moment. And you know that story last week that Liverpool might be being put up for sale, and you sort of think, right, who who are the potential buyers for this entity? Probably worth around three billion pounds, give or take half a billion. Well, realistically, maybe a couple of public investment funds from I don't know Bahrain or Dubai. Maybe it's possible. Otherwise, you're, you're looking to 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 American hedge funds who who think that there's a way. Of, of, and then clearly, this is a, a common thing among, hedge, among, among American hedge funds that they do think that the, the football clubs are still undervalued, and there's a way for those big clubs, probably by playing each other more, to further increase revenues. Last year, Newcastle United became the third major club in Europe to be owned by one of the Gulf monarchies, after Manchester City and Paris Saint Germain. ITV News carried this report on the sale of the club. For these fans, their club holds the soul of the city forever passionate to protect it, but for years they felt it had almost been lost, something that changed today. We just want the magic again and the happiness for the crowd and the supporters. They need it. I mean, they're desperate for it because we're the best in the world, you know. It would be great just to, just to like, have the club back, you know, because like, it's been, like, horrible, like, for years now. It's just what the city needs. I, I've known nothing else but Mike Ashley in charge. And I'm just buzzing and I can't wait to see what the future holds. Newcastle haven't been challengers for the Premier League title or a cup in decades. And fans say there is one man to blame. Mike Ashley's owned Newcastle United for 14 years, consistently criticised though for not investing in the club in the right ways. For former midfielder Lee Clark, his boss, should have left long ago. It was a hollow club, it was an empty club. It had no identity, it was sucking the life out of a fantastic group of supporters and um, thankfully the, they'll hopefully have that mojo back and, you know, the atmosphere going forward will be electric in the stadium. And it seems outside the stadium too. 
There is no concern about where this money is coming from. Saudi Arabia say it's from their public investment fund, but the chair of that is Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, accused of killing journalist Jamal Khashoggi, which the kingdom denies. Today, his fiancée and Amnesty International have come forward urging the Premier League to address the human rights issues. Former forward David Genoa says the deal is a lifeline for the club. Uh, it doesn't matter if the money is coming from one part of the world or the other part of the world. In England, what is beautiful is you have people investing money from all around the world. This is the moment people here have been waiting for. Finally, they say they have their club back, but others warn at what cost. As you've alluded to, three major European clubs are now effectively state-run projects of the Gulf monarchies. What does that mean for the game in England, in France and the wider world? I mean, it's very hard to see it as anything other than than terrible. I mean, on a whole range of levels. So take the case of Newcastle. This this proud old club that's existed for 120 odd years, that's represented the city of Newcastle and the people of Newcastle, and it now is beholden to the whim of, I mean, in, in theory, the, the, the Saudi Public Investment Fund, but realistically, the, the leaders of Saudi Arabia. And who's to say if the oil price falls that they won't think, oh, yeah, well, get rid of that. We don't need that. And then... Yeah, what, what what are the consequences for Newcastle? What are the reasons that clubs own? Are they to win football matches and win titles? Are they to make money? Well, less so than to promote the image of Saudi Arabia and to 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 give Saudi Arabia an avenue into the society and business environment of of Western Europe. And, and if you believe that football clubs can be and should be a representation of their area, that's a, that's a major change. Now, a lot of Newcastle fans seem quite happy with that um, deal they've done. But, you know, you saw with Chelsea what can happen if you get involved in in geopolitics, that suddenly your your owner can get sanctioned and you could very realistically be facing bankruptcy. Uh, as it is, Chelsea uh, were taken over by Clear Lake and, and Todd Bowley, who I don't think have made a particularly good job of it so far. So... And I think that's, to an extent, it's true with hedge funds as well, that ownership has been taken away from the community, and that's a very, very dangerous thing. And you can make the case that you know, even sort of 50, 60 years ago, when clubs were, were owned by a local building magnate or the local haulier or whatever, you know, that, that, that person has a lot of power. But he is still at least, to an extent, beholden to the community from which he comes. So, so that, that dynamic has changed. Uh, I think the far bigger issue uh, for football generally is that these clubs are not controllable. Uh, if you have the sovereign wealth of Saudi Arabia behind you, you know, as, as, as I mentioned earlier, how can the FA or the Premier League or UEFA or FIFA control them? Well, they can't because if it comes to any kind of legal battle, Saudi Arabia can afford the better, better lawyers and can afford to drag it out, and they can they they can win by by draining your resources and and that, that's that's a problem that I think UEFA has found and the Premier League is finding that once the once the clubs are bigger than the 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 associations and the organisations who supposedly provide the the governing structure, then the regulations that FIFA, UEFA, the FA have are as good as meaningless. During the first decade of this century, many English football fans looked to Germany as a better alternative model for how football could be run in the modern age that wouldn't have the same stark inequalities between clubs. Does the hegemony of Bayern Munich over the last 10 years mean that they had it wrong? I don't think that they had it wrong, but that they, they possibly hadn't looked at the bigger picture. I, I, I totally get why the German model is attractive. So the German model 50 plus one, which says that the fan control or member control of a club has to be equal to a minimum of 51%, with a couple of exceptions such as Bayer Leverkusen and uh, Wolfsburg, who were the, the, the company team of Bayer, the, the pharmaceutical company, uh, and Wolfsburg from, from um, Volkswagen. The, the, they had a slightly different ownership structure. Leipzig, now owned by, by Red Bull, have shown that even while complying with the letter of the 50 plus 1 regulations, you can drive a pretty big truck through through the spirit of it. But I get why that's attractive, a sense that fans do have control. I think German fan culture is very attractive 
you know, the, the, the color of the atmosphere of German grounds, I think you see the slightly anodyne nature of Premier League grounds these days, and you can see why that's appealing to people. Bayern Munich's great rivals in the German league are Borussia Dortmund. This clip from the Bundesliga's official channel tries to convey the atmosphere at their home games. It's the largest standing terrace in world football. 25,000 fans each a brick in Dortmund's legendary yellow wall. It's an experience and an honour just to have a season ticket there. It's like nothing else on earth. Spectacular, unique. 100 metres wide, 40 high in total. Sloping down at 37 degrees, steep as the in-run of a ski jump slope. Goosebumps every time you run out. We're so lucky to have a stadium with that terrace. For visiting teams, the experience can be pretty intimidating. The yellow wall is Dortmund's imposing 12th man. Ticket prices are much lower. I think there's a much greater sense of, of fan engagement in political issues. As you've seen German clubs taking very strong stances against homophobia, in support of refugees, on, on, on social issues. All of that, I think, is incredibly attractive. And I get why people want to want to import some of that into, into the Premier League. However, it didn't alter the fact that Bayern were getting richer than everybody else, much quicker than everybody else. And nothing seems to have been able to stop that. And that's partly because it was successful. It's also partly because they had huge investment in Munich. And Munich is a wealthy city, has a wealth of sponsors and investors. So Bayern have a lot more money. I think around about 70% greater revenue than Dortmund, who are the second richest German club. So inevitably, they they win. And, and they've got such power that they can not merely buy the best players, but they can effectively neuter opponents by buying their opponents' best players. So Klopp's Dortmund, when they were challenging Bayern, were, were essentially neutered by losing Robert Lewandowski, Mario Götze and Matt Hummels all to Bayern. It wasn't just they sold them, it's they sold them to their direct rival. And I think you look at German football now and yeah, below Bayern, it's still a great league, but Bayern are so dominant that it, it there's no sense of a title race, there's no sense of jeopardy there. And I think that, that that obviously takes a huge amount away from the attractiveness of it. This clip from the National Football League in the US explains how the draft system works for picking new players. Every year, the best college players in the country are picked by NFL teams. It's a model that has no parallel in European soccer. ...strengths in a series of physical and mental tests at the NFL Combine. They do so in order to impress key personnel at each of the NFL teams and hope they might be picked by one of the teams at the three-day NFL draft. During the draft, each of the 32 teams receives at least one draft pick in each of the seven rounds. The order of draft selection is determined by the reverse order of finish from the previous season. In order to keep the NFL as competitive as possible, the team with the worst record picks first in each round, with the Super Bowl champion picking last. Teams can trade these picks with each other for future picks or players in order to improve their draft position. Then each team has a time limit to make their draft pick. While the coveted number one overall pick is expected to be a future NFL star, in every draft, any late round pick can go on to become the next Russell Wilson. You just never know. The traditional stereotype presents the US as having a more cutthroat, unregulated version of capitalism than many European states. So it's somewhat ironic in light of that stereotype that top level American sport appears to be rather more egalitarian than European soccer in various ways, in terms of the draft pick, in terms of television, money, distribution and so on. How did that American sporting model come about and could it ever be replicated in Europe? Yeah, I don't think it's quite as straightforward as that because, the, I mean, it, it, you, yes, to the extent that TV money is much more equitably divided, yes, you have the draft system and so that makes competition much more equal. But that's actually a very cynical, money-oriented way of doing things because these are not organic clubs. These are franchises who are in a cartel and that cartel makes money and nobody it's almost impossible to lose money because the cartel keeps everybody going, keeps everybody on a level. So there's no organic sense, which I think for me is the great beauty of European football, of a club really representing its society, of having grown for, you know, I mean, I'm a Sunderland fan. Sunderland, the football club, grew from a, a teacher's team in the 1870s 
a, a teacher called James Allen put the team together and it slowly grew into into the Sunderland we know today, which has become probably the, the, the one thing that Sunderland has left as heavy industry has fallen away. The one reminder of the city that Sunderland used to be. I think it's very, very difficult to get that with a franchise model. So could you impose a franchise model on Europe? I think that's really difficult because if you say you wanted to impose a franchise model on Europe, so say you want, I mean, yeah, NFL has what, 32 franchises. Say you want 32 franchises across Europe. What you don't do is put two of those franchises in Manchester and one in Liverpool. You don't put three of them in London. You don't put two of them in Milan. And and yet those rivalries between the two Manchester clubs and Liverpool, between the two Milan clubs, those are one of the great selling points of of football are those rivalries. So I, I, I think to, to impose that model now is very, very difficult. So Gianni Infantino, the president of FIFA, has had this idea for an African Super League. And in, in Africa, uh, you can make the case that it, it's in desperate need, of, it's football is in desperate need of investment, that you have a less wealthy, a less established system of club competition, which is semi-true. I mean, you know, the African Champions Cup has been going since the 50s, uh, the same as the European Cup. And, but he, Infantino's idea was we have this closed league of, of 20 clubs and you know, we get all this investment and, and those 20 clubs share the investment. But then you get that, that immediate problem. Where do you put the franchises? Do you base them on existing clubs? And if you do, how can you possibly choose whether to have Arachli or Zamalek from Cairo? How can you possibly choose whether to have uh, Raja Casablanca or Wada Casablanca? And given one of the big selling points still of African football is those derbies, to lose that seems to lose the one thing that people are still interested in. Or, you know, you look at South America, would you still have River and Boca if you were to, to franchise a league or you know, franchise Libertadores across South America? You probably wouldn't. I think that's an issue that, that, that US football has, that these these organic rivalries, which mean so much more than football, there's no way they can they can grow up. I mean, I guess to an extent you can get a rival between New York and, and Boston. Or yeah, New, well, New York and New England, I guess it would be, in terms of the, the franchises that, that are there. But it, it's not as visceral, it's not as deep-seated as Liverpool versus Manchester United. And, and, and that, I think, makes it a much harder sell to, to a wider, wider public. As a final question, coming back to the international game, Brazil and Argentina are the only countries from the global south that have consistently challenged the European giants in the World Cup. How did they achieve that? And what's the current state of the game in those countries? Well, I, I guess the, the, the question then would be who else in the global south is big enough and has enough wealth to compete? I guess you, you, you might make a case for South Africa, uh, but obviously South Africa you know, is, is, is recovering from, from its own problems and, and, and that would take a long time to, uh, to work through. Maybe Australia, but football's never been the the big sport in Australia. So they're the two countries in the Southern Hemisphere or in the Global South who who, who have both the size of population and the interest in football and the revenue to prosper. Uh, I think they both had the advantage of getting football relatively early. I mean, this is my pet theory, but, but indulge me. Uh, they both had Hungarian influence very early. And I think if you look at the countries who prospered in, in football, they all had... Hungarian involvement before 1950. Uh, so they, they definitely benefited from, from, from that, that they attracted people from the Hungarian diaspora. And as to how they are now, well, they, 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 they're both, they're both national teams are, are playing really well. I think they're arguably the two favourites of the World Cup. Argentina are 35 games unbeaten, I think. Brazil have lost once of the last 28 or 29, which, which was to Argentina. The doubt about them is that neither, part, partly because of the pandemic, partly because of the arrival of the UEFA Nations League, which means that UEFA Nations, European Nations, tend to be playing against each other because they have a structured competition for that now. So neither Brazil nor Argentina has played a lot of games against European opposition since the last World Cup. So Brazil lost to Belgium in the quarterfinal of the last World Cup. Since then, they've only played the Czech Republic one one game in the last four years, four and a bit years, against the European opposition. I think Argentina have played three in a 35-game run, but one of them was Estonia. So, you know, not, not really a test. So that's the question, Mark. Can they do it against European opposition? The club football in those countries keeps going, but it's it's not really thriving because, you know, all the money in, is in Western Europe. So, you know, they, they have what, what's called the talent donut. So 
the only good players there of age sort of 17 or 18 or 34 or 35. And if you're there as a 27-year-old, you're either not that good or you've been to Europe and something's gone wrong. You've got homesick or you got ill or you got badly injured or something's caused you to go back home. But fundamentally, they're, they're export markets. And as soon as a player emerges with talent age 16, 17, 18, they, they get shipped off to Europe because that's that's where all the money is. Very occasionally you get somebody like Julian Alvarez, uh, who joined Manchester City in the summer, who I think was 21 when he left. But that was because he was so good that everybody knew that he didn't have to grab the first European offer that came. And it was worth giving him a couple more years to, to bed in and learn the game in a domestic environment. And you know, so he played for River Plate and, and looked way better than anybody else in Argentina, even at the age of, of 20. Many thanks to Jonathan Wilson for that look at the economics and parapolitics of modern football. You can find his articles on the Guardian website. To wrap things up, here's the best World Cup song, New Order's World in Motion from 1990.